Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. I'm your host, Dr. Dina Valachi, president of the ANA, and thank you for tuning in. It is my pleasure to welcome Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who serves the Illinois 14th Congressional District. She is actually the first woman, the first person of color, and the first millennial to represent her community in Congress. She also serves on the House Committee of Appropriations and the House Committee of Veteran Affairs, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the podcast, Congressman Underwood, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hi, Dina. Thank you so much for having me. I am Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. I represent a suburban and rural community outside of Chicago. I'm a public health nurse, and I am really delighted uh, to take Uh, these policy priorities impacting the nursing profession and the communities we serve and really lean in in the Congress. Thank you so much. And as someone who is a registered nurse and is on the House Committee of Veteran Affairs, you have a unique perspective on healthcare. Can you share your insight on the workforce shortage that we are experiencing in nursing and what are the problems and how can we address them? Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has shined a light on and exacerbated nursing workforce shortages. And I'm working to address these issues in the near term and the long term. So even before the pandemic, we saw a nursing workforce shortage. The Bureau of Labor Statistics projected a need for more than 200,000 additional nurses in the coming decade due to an aging population and an ever-increasing demand for healthcare services. And again, that was before the pandemic. So then during the pandemic, we saw a significant number of nurses exit the workforce. Um, As you know, we've heard a lot from our frontline bedside nurses who've been forced to work long hours and face serious health risks as the virus spread. And unlike medical students in our country, nurses have largely been forced to finance, especially their graduate nursing education on their own. And so we've not seen, and especially in this pandemic context, um, as rapid of a pipeline to you know, backfill these nurses who have exited um, over the last couple of years. So I've had a few solutions. On my work on Veterans Affairs, I heard from the new Secretary of Veterans Affairs and the leaders in the department about the shortages that they were facing, particularly their challenge in offering competitive salaries. So I wrote a bill, it's called the RAISE Act. It's for uh, APRNs and physician assistants to increase the maximum salary for all advanced practice nurses, all registered nurses and physician assistants at the Veterans Health Administration. And thanks to my bill becoming law, VA is going to be able to recruit and retain top healthcare talent and ensure that our veterans receive the timely, high quality care that they've earned. So you should see that going into effect all across the country and your members should be reporting back to you about their ability to make competitive uh, salaries as, you know, as they would if they were working in a civilian or community healthcare system. Now, I'm also the lead sponsor in the House for an important piece of legislation called the Future Advancement of Academic Nursing Act, which we call the FAN Act, which would make an unprecedented $1 billion, billion with a B, investment in schools of nursing to strengthen nursing education and grow the future nursing workforce. Now, we were successful 
and getting 500 million of that included in the big bill that we were calling last fall, Build Back Better. You might've heard of that. Plus then another 500 million for the Nurse Corps program. So it would be collectively a billion dollars to address current nursing workforce shortages and strengthen the pipeline for decades to come. So keep an eye on the FAN Act and this money um, because we're hoping that we still have an opportunity to get that through the House, through the Senate and signed into law. We also got a $20 million funding increase in the government funding package that was signed earlier this spring for the HRSA Health Workforce Programs. So that would be the Title VIII Nursing Workforce Development Programs, which are essential to bolstering nursing education at all levels and supporting our great schools of nursing in rural and medically underserved areas in particular. Well, I just want to say we are totally excited for all of that. And we've been championing behind you because as you know, I was a 10-year ER trauma nurse and then went back to anesthesia school and being in the front lines in New York City when the pandemic hit. So I totally thank you for championing us because we really feel we have a voice finally, like 100%. So I appreciate that. In April 2020, the VHA directive provided a temporary expansion of scope of practice for um, full practice authority for CRNAs so that we could operate to the full extent of our licensure in all the states. Um, the goal was to improve access during the COVID pandemic. And in 2021, you wrote a letter to the Secretary of Veteran Affairs recommending that the VHA make this expansion permanent and have asked the VA about this in multiple hearings. Can you tell us why you are making this recommendation and what, if um, anything, that we can do to get it across the line? So as we speak, VA is carrying out what they call a national standards of practice review to determine whether CRNAs can permanently practice without physician supervision within the VA. Now, granting full practice authority for CRNAs would be in line with TRICARE, and the majority of states, and most importantly, it's backed by the evidence. We've seen a comprehensive assessment of the clinical effects of granting full practice authorities Two CRNAs found that there were no patient risks when CRNAs practiced without physician supervision. So in other words, there is no scientific or clinical argument for restricting CRNA practice. And so that's why I've written to Secretary McDonough. I've questioned him and other VA witnesses at congressional hearings and met with the Department of Veterans Affairs staff to urge them to make a determination on CRNA practice authority that is consistent with the evidence. Let's be very clear here. They have all the authorities that they need to make this decision and they can do it right now. And so that's what we are urging them to do is just to take action. Unfortunately, the resistance to following the data is coming from the American Society of Anesthesiologists who are well-funded and they are committed to spreading inaccurate information about CRNAs. So it's important to remember that the anesthesiologists have never been able to provide any evidence to suggest that there is a patient risk associated with full practice authority for CRNAs. But to push back on these false arguments, CRNAs need to make your voices heard with my colleagues, with members of Congress, particularly other members on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. You also need to weigh in with the VA throughout this ongoing standards review. Okay, so literally call, write letters, send emails. 
really tactical things that everybody needs to be doing. Now, I consider myself to be a data-driven, evidence-based policymaker. And on this issue, the evidence is clear. VA must allow CRNAs to practice to the full extent of their education and training. And I will not stop leading on this issue until VA does what we know is right for veterans who deserve to access this high-quality care that you all provide. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And, and it's interesting. We actually found there was backlog in a lot of the VA systems that they were not able to get access to anesthesia services because they didn't have the providers there. And we actually saw it in Colorado. And especially with the pandemic, when we lost the ability to have regular scheduled surgery, um, we had such a backlog. So, uh, you know, I worry about the health equity um, to our veterans because now they are having struggling to get into the system and actually get the care that they deserve on a very health equitable basis. So I thank you for that. And we are pushing as hard as we can. It just seems that, that one last push, as you say, it's the hard one to get over the, over the thing. So again, I thank you for all of that as well. Looking at the future for advanced practice nurses and the healthcare, what do you see out there for us on the next horizon as far as in like a, an emergency workforce, how, how we can make it better so we can adjust to those times when things happen again. We do have nationwide opportunities to join like medical response uh, kind of entities um, or, you know, these different emergency preparedness teams that are oriented and based out of health and human services. And so those remain. I think what's key is that we all need to remember that we have a role to play to lead during times of emergency. And I think that what we've seen throughout COVID is that we all know who runs our health department. Right. And uh, many of us know the name of that health department director and even, you know, non clinicians are now very familiar with what their health department does. Well, guess what? That health department is overseen by somebody and all of you should be on that oversight board. You are totally qualified um, and your communities are really waiting for your leadership. That might be an appointed position to like a board of health or it might be an elected position to like a county board. Um, but I would just encourage people to think about maybe non-traditional opportunities mm -hmm. to serve in this context of a pandemic or an extended public health emergency. You know, we've just seen how powerful our expert voices are when we choose to step up and lead. And I think for so long, nurses at, you know, APRNs or RN nurses or doctorally prepared have chosen not to engage in this area as policymakers. And I think that that opting out has really held us back. I can't agree with you more. We're very good. We're the angel-like profession where we take care of the patient and we always kind of forget about us and what we need to do. We always put patients first and advocates. So thank you for that point, because you're right. We do need to be advocates for ourselves and we need to stand out there and be that light of the voice of change. You know, as a policymaker, you are an advocate for the patient. You just have a certain level of expertise that, you know, some lawyer might not have, right? And those are stereotyping a little bit, but that's generally who would self-select to run for some of these bodies. And so all I'm saying is see yourself as a leader outside of the clinical context and in your free time or personal time. That doesn't mean that your expertise is not desired in the right. community. I totally agree with you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you um, as my guest, Congressman Underwood, for the encouraging discussion for us and our members. 
Thank you for your support on this huge issue that we are facing with us. And again, please join us next time for another episode of Moving the Needle. And if you'd like to read Representative Underwood's full letter to the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, we will be including a link to the press release. And thanks again for listening. Do not forget to like and subscribe. Tell your friends to come back. And we appreciate all the support.